Confinement is arguably one of the cruelest forms of punishment in the world. Certainly within acceptable prison practice. It's a concept I'm sure you're familiar with if you've seen such films as The Great Escape. uh, With Steve McQueen, I think. Is that right? Um, The Shawshank Redemption, slightly more recently. And certainly uh, TV shows like Prison Break. In the most inhumane prisons, there's no light, the door is kept closed, and the person is left all alone in complete darkness, nothing to read, nothing to do, nothing else at all. Why is it that solitary confinement is so difficult to endure? I think it's because we're social beings, we're designed for relationship, for interaction with one another. I'm sure perhaps the majority of us would be able to relate to feelings of isolation and abandonment. Perhaps we've been betrayed by a spouse, abandoned by parents, neglected by friends. These feelings of isolation are never pleasant. And if we recap slightly, backtrack and review the recent studies that we've done in Luke, Um, recent events that Luke chronicles in his gospel, the events that have led us up to this point, we'll see that Jesus is becoming increasingly isolated. His company is dwindling. Today is Palm Sunday, but if we look back to Luke's account of the original event, the triumphal entry, we see that there was a whole crowd of disciples joyfully praising God in loud voices. It's chapter 19, verse 37. Then Jesus shares the Passover meal with his twelve companions, a meal that is eagerly desired to eat. Chapter 22, verse 15. Later that evening, Jesus prays at Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, as we were hearing this morning, now with eleven disciples. As Judas leads the crowd that arrested Jesus, we read in Mark's account, in fact, that everyone deserted him and fled. Mark chapter 14, verse 50. And yet there's hope, because we read in our passage today, in verse 54, that although everyone had abandoned Jesus, Peter followed at a distance. This is good. This is encouraging. Because remember, this was the guy who was ready to go with Jesus to prison and to death. I read that a couple of weeks back, or last week, chapter 22, verse 33. He was one of the big three, Jesus's inner circle of friends. If Jesus could count on anyone, surely he could count on Peter. Yet even Peter rejects Jesus. Fulfilling Isaiah's prophecies from which I've gleaned my title this evening, despised and rejected by men. It's a quote from the Old Testament book of Isaiah written approximately 700 years before the birth of Jesus. It says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. In Isaiah 53, verse 3. So let's turn to the passage and continue to trace Jesus' rejection as we progress through the Passion narrative. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to read the passage together. It's Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 54. Uh, up to verse 71. If you haven't got a Bible with you, uh, it would be helpful if you have one in front of you, so do feel free to 
uh, make use of the church Bibles in the pews. And if you're using one of those, you'll find it on page 1059. 1059. Then, seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also were one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy! Who hit you? And he said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. We're going to sing a song again uh, to help you kind of follow a train of thinking, train of thought here. Firstly, uh, we see from verses 54 to 62 that Jesus was rejected by his friends. After his arrest, Jesus is taken to the home of the high priest. Peter, having followed from a distance, ends up sitting down by a fire with the servants in the courtyard of the high priest's house. We're not sure if the house belonged to Annas or, or Caiaphas. Both were uh, called high priests, one past and one present. The title high priest is kind of like um, the title of U.S. president. It's a title that kind of stays with you throughout the course of, of your life and, and beyond, I guess. Uh, it could have been either, it could have been both. But uh, certainly courtyards were quite a common feature in Greek architecture. Well, the events of the evening and the arrival of Jesus at this house no doubt have the servants talking. And one of them, a maidservant, recognizes Peter in the firelight and says, This man was with him. Verse 56. Peter's denial is swift and clear. Woman, I am not. Sorry, woman, I don't know him. Verse 57. His denial is so strong that he even disassociates himself with the other disciples. I'm not with them. I'm not one of his followers. I don't even know the man. A little later, another servant speaks up saying, You also were with him. Again, Peter is quick to refute and is equally insistent. Man, I am not, he replied. Verse 58. 
Now, we're not told of any charges against the disciples of Jesus, so what reason does Peter have to so fervently deny his master? Well, perhaps one of the most rational explanations we can suggest is that it was simply fear. Fear of the consequences of being associated with Jesus. About an hour later, Peter denies Jesus a third time, as yet another man insists. Certainly, this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. His accent was the giveaway. With the third denial, just as the cock crowed, Jesus' words to Peter at the Last Supper come to pass. Remember? I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Verse 34. Peter looks at Jesus. Sorry, Jesus looks at Peter, a knowing look. And there's a sudden moment of recollection. Peter remembers the words the Lord had spoken to him. And he's overcome by sorrow and remorse. Knowing exactly what he'd done, Peter left, weeping bitterly. Darrell Bock said, the rock man has been crushed to pieces by the pressure. If ever you could unspeak some words. Do you ever say something that you regret? Do you ever regret not having said what you ought? Mike, you mean to tell me you're a Christian? You believe all that Jesus nonsense? Well, it's the thing with church and kind of Sundays. Did you see the football this weekend? How many God-given opportunities do we miss? Because like Peter, we're too afraid of the consequences. We're afraid of what people will think. We're afraid that somehow will tarnish our precious reputation. Are we ashamed? Let's not just limit this to words. We can deny Jesus in all sorts of ways. We can deny him by our thoughts. That little thought that we entertain, that we enjoy, if the truth be told. We can deny Jesus by our actions, or equally by our inaction. Jesus, we know, has a heart for the poor and for the oppressed. How often we look the other way when we see poverty and injustice. I'm sure there's some lessons we can learn from Peter. Uh, Three of them, in fact. Firstly, sins start small. How small and gradual are the steps by which we go down into great sins. Peter's problem began with his pride. It continued with his failure to pray not to fall into temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. Finally, we see that fear would get the better of him and he was trapped in the web of his own deceit, his own lies. Do you ever feel the eyes of Jesus on your life looking straight at you with that knowing look? I do. More often than I'd care for you to know. Do you feel that conviction of sin? Well, this passage speaks wonderfully to the sovereignty of God. Jesus knew Peter would deny him. The specifics were uncanny. You may expect that uh, it would be a safe bet, given the circumstances, that one of Jesus' disciples would deny him, even as many as three times. But three before the cock crowed? That's a very specific prediction. 
Secondly, we can see that Christ's mercy is infinite. The Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely merciful. Friends, Jesus knows our hearts. He knows when we're going to slip up. He sees our sin, and that is a frightening thought. Jesus knows. But you know what? It's also a comforting thought. Jesus knows. Simon. Simon. Simon's Peter's Hebrew name. Satan is asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Verses 31 to 32. Peter didn't experience a crisis of faith. His faith didn't fail. He experienced a crisis of courage. He lost it. His remorse is testimony to his continuing faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He knew he had let Jesus down. And that remorse, that regret, results in restoration. Fast forward past the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, past the ascension, into the accounts of the early church, uh, recorded in the book of Acts, that um, God willing we'll be studying as a church after Easter. Turn with me, in fact, to uh, Acts chapter 4. A couple of books forward in the New Testament. Luke describes Peter in a much more desperate situation than this. This time it is him that's on trial. Has he learned from his mistake? You bet. Follow from, um, from verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Church history will tell us that, um, that Peter became one of the champions of the faith, he'd eventually be martyred, crucified for confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. And tradition has it that Peter wouldn't allow himself to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus was. He didn't feel worthy of it. And so he asked that he be crucified upside down. Take courage, friends. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows every mistake we're going to make. He knows when we're going to ask for forgiveness. And he knows when we're going to slip up again. And he loves us all the same. He's already paid the price on the cross for sins, past, present, and future. How encouraging to know that even the best of them, even Peter, who walked on water with Jesus, can fail and experience complete restoration. John Charles Ryle comments insightfully, If the Christian religion had been the invention of uninspired men, Its first historians would never have told us that one of the chiefest apostles denied his master three times. So, sins start small. Christ's mercy is infinite. And thirdly, sins aftertaste is bitter. Bear in mind that final lesson. We can't take God's mercy as a license to sin. Regardless of forgiveness, sin still leaves a bitter taste. And the consequences can be lasting. They can afflict us for the rest of our lives. Broken relationships, 
perhaps. Lives ruined. When Peter realized what he had done, he went outside and wept bitterly. Christ's forgiveness is complete. Let sorrow be the companion of repentance. Be encouraged by Christ's infinite mercy and persevere. Some familiar words from 1 John chapter 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So secondly, into the second half of our passage, verses uh, 63 to 71, we see Jesus despised by his enemies. There's actually a number of reactions to Jesus recorded in this passage. We've considered the abandonment of Jesus by his friends, and particularly the threefold denial of Peter. But as we press on to see Jesus despised by his enemies, notice the most hostile and militant reaction to Jesus is that of the soldiers. The men who were guarding Jesus, verses 63 and 64, probably the temple guards who arrested him, began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? Soldiers, in fact, latch on to one of the most popular conceptions of Jesus, that he is a prophet. In fact, that idea is widely held in the world today, particularly uh, among um, the Islamic world, and even in the general public, on our streets. I suspect they didn't sincerely believe him to be a prophet, but nevertheless, the Jewish leaders would need something more concrete if they were to get their own way. Rome wasn't worried about uh, prophets. They were only worried about power. Well, these soldiers are having a great time with them. For them, Jesus is a little light-hearted entertainment. Some fun at the end of a busy day. He who could cast out demons with a word could have summoned legions of angels to his side. But the Lord's heart was set on the great work he had come to do. He had undertaken to purchase our redemption by his own humiliation. And he didn't flinch in so doing. The attitude of the soldiers reflects the attitude of some in our world today. Frivolity. For them, Christianity is a joke. Something you can poke fun at. The tragedy is, what they treat as frivolous is deadly serious. And those that mock Christ are often those that could use him the most. These few verses are difficult for the Christian to read. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God reduced to nothing but a punching bag. We return to the words of Isaiah in chapter 53, written 700 years before Christ. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was, like, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. I think that's why Luke spends so little time just concluding this section by simply saying, and they said many other insulting things to him. I suppose the pain would be too great to bear to explore the gory details any further. There was also the Jewish leaders. They were admittedly more civil to Jesus, but their attitude towards him is just as negative. Their problem is somewhat of a misguided intellectualism. 
For then Jesus didn't fit the bill of the Messiah. He was a nuisance and somebody who just simply needed to be got rid of. Somebody who needed to be removed. A little back, uh, background information into the legal process is helpful in just uncovering something of the sheer hypocrisy and illegality of the trial. So just give me a minute to explain. First of all, there was a Jewish trial. Jesus would have to be condemned under Jewish law. Unfortunately for the Jewish leaders, that wouldn't satisfy them because only Rome had the authority to sentence men to death, to execute criminals. A charge had to be found, therefore, that was worrisome to the empire. So following that first trial, there would have to be a Roman trial where the Jewish authorities would prevail upon Pilate, the Roman governor, to sentence Jesus to crucifixion. And we'll hear more about that, as Robin mentioned, at the Monday-Thursday communion service um, Thursday evening this week. Luke, as we've seen, doesn't spend a lot of time focusing on the events of the night. But in Mark's Gospel, we see there are actually two or three stages to this Jewish trial. During the night, Jesus was informally examined by Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, and in fact, other members of the Sanhedrin. Luke begins his account at daybreak with the formal meeting of the Sanhedrin, verse 66. Probably an attempt to legitimize the decisions that they'd already come to during the course of the night. Interestingly enough, though, it wasn't lawful under Jewish law to conduct a trial on capital charge during the night. Nor was it lawful to give the verdict the same day as the trial. In fact, there's a whole range of points in which Jesus' trial flagrantly contravenes Jewish law. They aren't even playing by their own rules. Such is the illegitimacy of this trial. But they're in a hurry. They've waited a long time for this, this moment. And now Jesus is in their hands. This is the time when darkness reigns. The central question on the lips of the Jewish leaders is this. Are you the Christ? Are you God's appointed king? Admission on Jesus' part would uh, present himself as an alternative king to Caesar. And that is what's worrisome to the the empire. He would face a political charge as a revolutionary. And that spelt death. If you're the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of mighty God. You see, discussion of the Messiahship is futile. We've been here before. We go round in circles. And so Jesus switches to his favorite term to describe himself. The Son of Man. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? Of course, men are sometimes referred to as sons of God. But notice the definite article here. Are you this Son of God? Not a Son of God. What they want to know is does Jesus claim a special relationship with God? Jesus' answer is you're right in saying I am. Uh, Certainly as translated by the NIV. A more literal translation than the NIV would suggest something more along the lines of you say that I am. But it's quite clear that the reply is taken positively. His reply is something like this. That's your word, not mine. I wouldn't have put it like that, but since you have, I can't deny it. The context shows that it must have been taken as an affirmative. Jesus' understanding of the term differed from theirs, but he can't disown it, says Leon Morris. 
He is the Son of God. The Sanhedrin aren't interested in how Jesus would prefer to introduce himself. They're not interested in his qualifications. They've heard enough. Jesus' defense led to his rejection. And he bears the weight of tragic injustice. There's a sense in which Jesus' trial is actually ours. I offer this by way of conclusion. The Bible speaks of a time when Jesus will return to judge all mankind. It won't be Jesus standing in the dock, it will be the whole of humanity, each and every one of us, standing condemned before a holy God because we are an unholy people. No one can expect to be exonerated before God by their good works because we're all guilty. Yet the good news of great joy that we've been considering as we've gone through this series studying the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus has taken our place. Not only is he rejected by his friends, despised by his enemies, he's also abandoned by his Father. Read in Matthew chapter 27. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was Jesus' mission. He was crucified at the hands of sinful men so that the spoiled relationship between man and God could be fixed. The connection could be restored. Back to Isaiah's prophecy regarding the Christ. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrow. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Good news. Great joy for all people. Jesus has made a way back to God. I wonder if any of these reactions to Jesus resonate with you this evening. Each of us has a choice to make. Now Jesus, who should rightfully be judged, stands awaiting your verdict. Will you turn your back on Jesus? Will you reject him? Will you refuse that free gift? I'm the only one who's qualified to give it. The clock is ticking. Time is running out. One day, it will be too late. And you'll be lost. I pray that wouldn't be the case. If anyone hearing my voice today. Let's just.